Welcome to Appointed. Well, welcome all our listening community to uh, this latest episode of uh, our podcast, Appointed. I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by the director of the British Columbia Aboriginal Network on Disability Society, uh, Neil Belanger, doing incredible work, raising awareness like I have seen nobody in I don't know how many years, raising awareness not just about the issues for those of Indigenous descent who have disabilities, but the disability community writ large. And so I wanted to talk to you a bit about the type of work you've been doing. I know you've been uh, front and center on um, on this work from a, you know, for a long time. So maybe you could first introduce everybody who's listening to what BCANS is, how did it get started? What are you working on right now? Thank you, Kim. Uh, my name is Neil Belanger, as you said, and I'm the uh, Chief Executive Officer for the British Columbia Aboriginal Network on Disability Society. Uh, and I'm calling in today from the traditional territories of the Esquimalt and Songhees peoples and uh, on uh, Vancouver Island here. And uh, uh, I'm very pleased again to be here. So um, a little bit about the society. Uh, we were created in 1991. And the society came to fruition uh, due to the work of uh, a number of community members. Of, uh, Ian Hinksman was one and Mike Tushi, uh, looking at the barriers that Indigenous people uh, with disabilities face just, um, you know, overall, you know, and the, the number of barriers, but particularly in the areas of employment. So uh, the concept originally for BCANS was to be an employment agency. And so they worked with the then, uh, it was called the Medical Assistance Branch, and it, it, it uh, transitioned into First Nations uh, and Inuit Health um, to, to work with a contract in British Columbia to distribute um, uh, information to all the First Nations in BC for the 203 First Nations. Uh, this was before, of course, the internet and, and that type of thing. So uh, the concept was that they would uh, hire uh, Indigenous people with disabilities, uh, do some life skill training, and, and through that, deliver through a contract with uh, the federal government, deliver information, health information to all First Nations communities in BC. So they had that contract in place um, and they did that work. The employment aspect didn't really come to the, the level that they, they thought it would be. There were some hiccups along the way and that type of thing. So although they kept the contract to distribute information, uh, employment training, skills development really didn't come to the level that it was anticipated to be. So from there, they went more into being, uh, well, maintaining that contract, more into being a referral agency. So individuals would call up and they'd say, well, I'm looking for housing. And they might refer them to, to uh, a nonprofit housing organization or to BC Housing. Uh, the same with transportation and other issues relating to um, you know, disability and the barriers that, that people face. Um, and it wasn't, it, it was more of a referral agency rather than following up and seeing how people were doing that type of thing. They also did some research projects as well on this type of thing. Um, and then in 2009, uh, we take we took a look at what we were doing and we revamped everything that we did do. So we looked at, uh, you know, more of the referral agency and, and created our Indigenous Disability Case Management Program. Uh, uh, we looked at more expanding partnerships. For, for many years, we've kind of worked in isolation and we realized the board at that time realized that, you know, we had to expand our scope and our partnerships and our collaborations in BC and across Canada. So 
we went through a series of changes and we developed new programs such as the program we have now, uh, Indigenous Disability Case Management. And that program is, is available to any Indigenous person with a disability residing in British Columbia, whether within an Indigenous or non-Indigenous community. We don't make any distinction on their disability, their disability-related needs, their gender, their age, their location in British Columbia. Uh, so basically, if you have a need related to your disability, uh, you can access services through us. And, that, and of course, those needs are many related to poverty, housing, transportation issues, uh, discrimination, racism, technology, education, employment. Uh, everyone uh, who comes to us, their, their, their need is a priority and we treat it, uh, treat it that way. So that was one of our core programs. From there, we launched into other programs as well, working with the provincial and federal governments. Uh, and we delivered the Indigenous Registered Disability Savings Plan program. So that's a federal program, the RDSP, uh, available to uh, persons with disabilities, uh, age zero to 49. And that's a, a very good program that was introduced in 2008 to help uh, persons with disabilities to get some financial security for their future disability and social and health related needs. So it, it does have some, some areas that could be improved for sure. Uh, but uh, if you are a person who is eligible for the disability tax credit, you can enter into that program and you can get up to $20,000 a year, depending on how, how old you are when you enter into it. So it's a really good program. We work on that. Uh, we have our, our provincial Jordan's principal uh, program as well, working with eligible uh, First Nations children uh, across British Columbia to help them access the services that they require as well, uh, including uh, uh, children, youth with disabilities. Um, we are the lead organization in Canada now uh, for monitoring the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. We work with uh, national and provincial disability organizations across the country uh, to develop uh, reports for the United Nations Committee, uh, the list of issues prior to reporting report, develop shadow reports, and we go to the UN and report to them directly and give updates on Canada's compliance uh, in relation to the various articles of the convention. And through that work, we try to influence um, uh, change at the domestic level through international work. And in too many degrees, we've been successful. Uh, we also uh, do a lot of research into in, in relation to uh, accessibility within First Nations communities across Canada. We're working with Accessible Standards Canada right now to look at two areas, policies that affect uh, members living with disabilities and the built environment. So that project we started this last year and we're working with communities across Canada. Um, we have an employment program here looking, uh, working with employers to see the reluctance for hiring uh, Indigenous people with disabilities uh, and trying to make recommendations for governments to implement new programs to, to make it more palatable uh, uh, and, and barrier-free for persons to get employed, those who can work. And of course, we have another research projects. We, we, uh, uh, we have Indigenous Disability Awareness Month that we created back in 2015. This year, we're having a gathering. Um, we work with partner organizations across Canada looking at the research for disability. And we sit on a number of advisory boards of government as well. So we've, we've come a long way since, uh, I guess my long story is we've come a long way since uh, 1991, and, and largely due to the, you know, the, the good leadership from the board and, and, the, and the dedication of the staffs that we've had over the years. Well, and very much under your leadership, because as you've just articulated, although it's a BC organization, it's an organization that certainly here in the unceded 
uh, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek, otherwise known as Ottawa. We know you because of the advocacy work you're doing uh, domestically within, not just within British Columbia, but across the country and, as you've mentioned, internationally. And you know, and I know, that Indigenous people experience disability rate much higher than that of the general population. And it's estimated at between at least 30 to 35 percent. And one of the areas, as you've also identified, in terms of initially the focus was often on trying to get people work. Uh, The ability to actually engage in paid employment is also a challenge due to the lack of accessibility often of those approaches, but also the need for financial security is significant for people with disabilities. And I'd like you to speak a bit about how the inadequacy of current social assistance schemes throughout this country, including one set up specifically here in Ontario, we have the Ontario Disability Support Program, uh, but none of, even though they top up a little bit social assistance, I don't know of anywhere in the country where there are adequate supports. And and certainly some of the work that I'm familiar with that you've been doing is talking about the inadequacy of the disability benefit and the need to actually build upon that with the, the current promises of this government to implement an adequate livable uh, disability benefit. So maybe you could talk a bit about that work and what you've been doing there in particular. Certainly, and 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 you're absolutely right, Kim. I mean, the uh, there, uh, you know, across Canada, we have different levels of disability assistance. You know, it's it's up to the the whim of the, of the province or the territory. Uh, the application process is not standardized across Canada at all, um, and uh, we see clawbacks from other uh, federal assistance coming into provincial territories. And I, and there's no. Um, disability assistance rate across Canada is above the poverty line. And the expectation has always been, and it's been this way, you know, and I've been working in health and disabilities for 25 years. It's always the, 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 um, the, the uh, concept of if you get a job, we'll get you a job, everything will be okay. Uh, but we don't live in a perfect world by any sense of the imagination. We deal with uh, accessibility barriers, as you say. We deal with systemic racism and discrimination, anti-Indigenous racism, um, transportation, isolation, all those issues uh, that really prohibit uh, people from getting a job, those who, who are able to work. Right. So so we've always been kind of a critic of the idea that, well, if as long as you get a job, we're going to do it in a perfect world that might work. But we don't live in a perfect world and there's too many other barriers there. So. So, yes. And the rates are are phenomenally low. You know, the, the government of Canada, as you noted, has uh, has um, introduced the concept of a new federal disability uh, uh, benefit for persons with disabilities, and right now they're working with uh, with uh, community-based organizations across Canada to do consultations and see how this would be designed. This type of thing we saw during CERB that uh, you know uh, people are getting two thousand dollars. You know the government said, "Look, it you need two thousand dollars to be able to go." There's things are closed now as people are in peril, um, and we would agree. You know if you're a person uh, uh, in Canada. Uh, Without a disability, $2,000 may be that minimal level that you need. But we know that when you're living with a disability, when you're living in a remote community, when you don't have access to to transportation, when housing is a problem, if you live in Vancouver or Toronto or Victoria, where rental costs are phenomenally high, much more than what you're getting from any income assistance program, disability or others, that that rate has to be considerably higher. Um, So, I mean, for us as an organization, we actually have advocated for a $1,700 top up of all provincial uh, disability benefits, Um, uh, you know, and and using that 
using the, the milestone at, at a minimum. Across Canada, people should get $2,400 if you're living with a disability. Uh, so we've been pushing that forward, uh, you know, and, and also we've been saying that there has to be a, uh, a very high uh, employment exemption rate. So in BC, uh, persons uh, who are in receipt of uh, disability benefits can earn an additional $15,000 a year without it affecting its benefits. Uh, and we think that should be maintained across all of Canada for any new federal benefit as well. There should be zero clawbacks on that benefit as well. We see here, for example, in many provinces and territories, but in BC, if you if you are on uh, the Canada Pension Plan disability, if you get that, uh, and if you are on um, uh, provincial persons with disability benefits, um, it's clawed back. It, the, the, the CPP is paid and then the government will top it up to make provincial levels. So an insurance um, an insurance policy that you've paid into, you never actually, you know, reap the benefits of it. Uh, and, and you're put back into a situation where you're living and having income support under the poverty line. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And, 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 mm-hmm. and, and I guess these things are all designed with the premise that will, you know, we'll keep them low to, as an incentive for people to go and get work. And, and that's a bad mindset, right? I mean, there's so many things that we could do uh to to do things and and when and we talk about the 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 new federal benefit or if we talk about a guaranteed livable livable basic income i mean that's not the the only fix that needs to be in place we have to look at anti-indigenous discrimination we have to look at the housing problem we have to look at transportation issues we have to look at supplementary health care all those other things that have to remain in place and be increased as well mental health services everything that we know it can't you know you can't say oh we'll give you one and we'll reduce these i mean there has to be a, a a better social safety net for everybody going forward, you know, uh, and, and, you mm-hmm. know, and, and of course we're biased, particularly for persons with disabilities, indigenous and non. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you've pointed out the, the fact that if you're living in poverty, if you have disabilities, if you're indigenous, it's the intersections of all those, um, layers and potential areas of discrimination that make it a double triple quadruple whammy for some folks and so we see the rates of poverty for indigenous children is higher than any in any other part of the country as well 40 percent of indigenous children are living in poverty we see that um, those places where there aren't clawbacks you actually see greater incentive for people to work if in fact the money is not going to be clawed back or they're not going to be thrown off the pharmacare program limited as it is that they may have otherwise have access to so as you know i'm advocating and a number of us at this level at the senate and a number of members of parliament have advocated uh, for a guaranteed livable basic income not just on its own not to replace social assistance alone, but as part of a comprehensive social, economic, and health, uh, I like to think of it as net, but not a safety net, but a net that allows people to rebound out of crisis situations or to provide a platform for to make a more equitable starting point. As you know, PEI, the, the um, Prince Edward, Legisla- Prince Edward Island Legislature, the Special Committee on Poverty, passed, tabled a report calling on the establishment of a guaranteed livable basic income. The province has agreed to start doing that for people with disability and for, uh, for some leaving care, young people leaving care. Uh, they're also working with Indigenous leaders in Prince Edward Island. And I'm curious as to, you know, in BC, they took a different approach. Were you consulted by the group that was looking into basic income in 
in BC? And if so, what are the kinds of things you'd like to see as part of this kind of Well, we were kind of, kind of yes and no. I guess is the, the answer to that question. So, so BC started a poverty reduction strategy. Uh, I, I think it was back in 2017, 18. And we were on, we were one of the members of that larger committee, which brought together, um, you know, indigenous organizations and peoples and the persons living in poverty, different organizations to come together and start looking at poverty in British Columbia and how to, how to start to begin to address that thing uh, there. Um, there was also the expert, committee put together by the government to to take a look at uh, basic income in British Columbia. Uh, and from that, so the basic income, the, the expert committee, uh, they were not in favor of basic income here in BC. They, they felt that it was it, it was not the best way to go. Um, and, and, but from that report, uh, the First Nations uh, Leadership Council uh, worked with the government of BC to do a review um, of the uh, income um, security system here in BC as it, as it pertains to Indigenous people. So they did a report there as well, um, looking at the report from the expert panel and, and then making recommendations. But it wasn't per se recommendations to, to uh, uh, universal basic livable income. It was more about how to reform the, the current system to make it more palatable, more equitable for Indigenous persons living with disabilities or those living in poverty. So there were three reports that were done. There was the um, barriers and gaps um, and income supports for Indigenous um, people uh, in BC. There was uh, together uh, BC anti-poverty reduction uh, uh, report, and then the the report by the expert panel. So we spoke to one of the members on the expert panels here at BCANS, but again, it wasn't about the universal basic income. It was about um, revamping the social assistance program within First Nations communities, you know, uh, and looking at how they affect, how the provincial uh, program affects uh, uh, persons with disabilities as well. And one thing I forgot to mention, Kim, is that one of the programs that we actually deliver here at BCANS is that we adjudicate persons with disabilities benefits for the majority of the two and three First Nations here in BC on behalf of Indigenous Services Canada. So we're well familiar with the application process, its limitations, that type of thing. So so were we consulted? I, we were involved in the anti-poverty initiative. Were we consulted on, you know, our, our perspective on universal basic livable income? I wouldn't say directly, no, but but Indigenous uh, leadership were uh, part of that. And they had representatives such as Cheryl Kashmir and, and uh, Judy Wilson, and they had representatives from the Métis Nation there as well. So they were part of that, that other report, another project. We spoke more about the systems that were currently in place, and we were never really asked about a, a universal basic livable income uh, per se directly. But opportunities were there for organizations uh, to put in written submissions, and we put in a submission with other partner agencies as well in relation to reducing poverty in BC. Great. Well, and as you know, even though the expert committee was supposed to look at that, one of the challenges was that they didn't necessarily uh, consult as widely with Indigenous communities as had initially been anticipated. And even though their recommendation came out saying um, not you know, not recommending starting a universal basic income. 
they actually did come out saying we need to have a guaranteed livable income for certain groups and and starting with women you know uh, people leaving care those who are in uh, violent relationships and actually also people with disabilities so it's interesting that that's in part why a uh, member of parliament from treaty one territory leah gazan and myself introduced a bill to say we really need to look at how do we do something that takes away the current judgmental, uh, more, I would say, moralistic approach to social assistance schemes throughout this country um, and instead put in place a situation where we have uh, a guaranteed livable income coupled with the kinds of supports that you're talking about. And so I'm curious what your views are on that kind of approach in terms of looking as, at it as a way forward and how you see that meshing with the disability benefit that the government is, has committed to implementing. No, I, I, I absolutely. I think it's a way forward for sure. And when it comes to the uh, the federal uh, disability benefit, the the one that's proposed, my only concern in that would be is um, and, and and kind of a a worry wart when it comes to these type of things is is that if the government is given a number of options that will come forward that they that we're presenting to look at them, they will say, well, let's not worry about the benefit then if we're going to look at universal basic livable income. And from from our position, of course, our priority are the people that we serve in our communities and their members living with disabilities. So we want to see that come to, to, to fruition. We want to see that implemented. We want to see what they're going to do with that. And from that, I think they can use that as a model to, to move forward and implement a universal basic livable income. And, you know, and there's a lot of people, a lot of organizations that, that are, you know, uh, are worried about the costs or worry about people all of a sudden quitting their jobs or whatever the case may be. A lot of things that we don't think will ever happen. Um, but no, I think it's I think it's the right step to do. And the pandemic has been a, a great eye opener. I mean, we don't have that net, as you said, you know, and all of a sudden governments are scrambling to implement stuff to 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 keep people, you know, afloat, keep families afloat. Um, absolutely. We need these things in place because we don't know there's an uncertain future out there. And, and, and those type of supports and that type of mentality is long overdue. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I don't really see the negative um, side to it. You know, if you're supporting people to thrive, supporting people to have better lives, supporting people to be able to make choices that they don't have the ability to do now because of their limited financial people you know going back to school being able to get to the the, the training they need be able to, to live in better places to eat healthier you know and all the reports that i've seen from any pilot project has has shown that people have reported that they've had better uh, uh health outcomes they're they they do they do better they you know it's um so I mean, uh, it's it's a way forward to be sure. But again, I don't want to compromise, you know, the the benefit for persons living with disabilities, and and I think we need to see that come out, and then go forward, uh, you know, and and go from there. So in many ways, you're recommending the same kind of incremental steps that the BC Expert Panel did, which is let's get it in place for uh, people with disabilities. And just so you know, everybody's clear, we're not talking when when I say we, Leah Gazan and myself and many others advocating a basic income, are not actually talking about what's often thought of when we talk about universal basic income, which is a demigrant or a, a money that goes to everybody, including those who are wealthy. We're talking about uh, an income based, but not, uh, you know, 
whether it's CRA model or some other model that gets developed, but an income-based model that doesn't then allow for the kind of judgmental approaches and moralistic approaches that determine whether some people are deserving or not. If you're below a certain income, you would be entitled to it. And, um, and it should be livable so that people can actually not just barely scrape by or live in abject poverty, but actually start to move forward and thrive. And all of the examples of these we've seen both in Canada and internationally have shown that when you provide those opportunities, people do better. And we see lower costs of healthcare, of um, the criminal legal system, those areas. And that's something I know you raise a lot of attention to every November uh, since I've been in this job, you've been sending us material to promote uh, the Disability Awareness Month in particular when it comes to individual Indigenous folks with disabilities. And so I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for all the work you do in your organization and uh, look forward to continuing to move, move all of these areas uh, together. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for all the work that you do. Yeah.